Welcome to The Word at Westminster, a podcast with talks, studies, interviews, sermons, and more from Westminster Church in Barrie, Canada. It's about learning and living God's Word. This post and podcast explains the meaning of baptism and who we baptize at Westminster Church, adults and also small children or infants, if one parent is a believer and member of the congregation, along with the rationale for that ancient practice. I should note that in points four to six below, I draw heavily from a document created by Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. The rest is from my own research and study. Let me begin with a historic faith statement from the 16th century called the Heidelberg Catechism. I think it sets the tone well and gets us into the right frame of mind. Question one asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's begin. One, important but not necessary for salvation. As we begin, it is important to highlight that the Bible does not teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, Ephesians 2.8. While baptism is an important sacrament and is a part of our faithful response to what God has done for us, it is not what puts us into a right relationship with God. Now, some people cite Mark 16, 16 to make the case that baptism is, in fact, necessary for salvation. That verse says, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. However, this verse is not in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament. It appears in Bibles in brackets or as a footnote and is not a part of the authoritative inspired text of Scripture. Two, not a reason to divide. Through the ages, people have held varying beliefs about baptism. In my view, this is not an issue that needs to divide churches. I am not alone in this thought. It is a widely held view. There may be reasons for Christians to part ways because of a different understanding of essential doctrinal matters. This is not one of them. I will say, however, that uh, what I'm about to present is widely accepted and widely practiced throughout many parts of the world. Three, what is baptism? Baptism was practiced in the Bible. John the Baptist baptized people in the Jordan River, Matthew 3, 6. Uh, Jesus himself was baptized by John, Matthew 3, verses 15 and 16. After his resurrection, Jesus gave this command to his disciples, often called the Great Commission. Quote, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Ever since, people have been baptized with these words and with water. People are submerged in rivers or tubs, or they have water placed or splashed on their heads. There are varying debates about how exactly baptism is to occur. Some argue that only full immersion uh, is real baptism. Others argue that a tub of water doesn't count and that the water needs to be part of a real body of water for it to be real. I'll leave those debates for another day. In the New Testament, the exact manner is not prescribed. The consistent elements are the formula, so in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that water is used, and that thought be given to the meaning of what is happening. That is what this post and podcast will discuss. In short, baptism is something Christians do in obedience to Jesus' command. Yes, but what does it actually mean? Well, baptism has many different meanings. Imagine picking up a diamond and holding it up to the sun. The light reflects and refracts onto the wall in different places. In a similar way, baptism is an event which means several different but related things at the same time. But before I share its meaning, let me be clear about something. The water is not magic juice that gets you into heaven. As stated already, what makes us right with God, both in this life and the next, is God's grace through faith in Christ, 
Ephesians 2.8. So having quickly touched on that common misconception, here are the meanings. A. Baptism symbolizes our union with God. We are baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28.19. In Galatians 3.27, Paul writes, All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. To take on someone's name is to be united with them. It is to be clothed with them. And that is what happens in baptism. B, baptism is a sharing in the death and resurrection of Christ. In Romans 6, 3 and 4, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. End quote. In this way, baptism is a dying to the old self and being alive in Christ. It is the formal beginning of a life following him. In the words of Swiss theologian Karl Barth, baptism is the first step of the way of a Christian life which is shaped looking to Jesus Christ. Alvaro da Silva writes, readiness to die, or better, the realization that baptism signals death and the beginning of new life is the foundation of Christian living. Eugene Peterson is the pastor who rendered the Bible into contemporary English. He called it The Message. Uh, in his memoir, he talks about his son, Eric. Uh, Eric grew up to become a pastor himself. At the end of funerals, he would say, so-and-so has completed his or her baptism. Hmm, they've completed their baptism. Through life, we die to ourselves and come alive in Christ, so too in death, but in a new and brilliant way. Baptism captures this in an act. See, baptism symbolizes the forgiveness of sin. John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Luke 3.3. 3. In this way, it has been long associated with forgiveness. However, Christian baptism is not the same as what John was doing in the Jordan River. His work happened before Jesus gave the Great Commission, mentioned previously, and before the rest of the New Testament was written. Even still, baptism continued to be closely connected with forgiveness. In Peter's well-known sermon at Pentecost, he proclaimed, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who far, are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's Acts 2, verses 38 and 39. This meaning picks up on the washing imagery with water. We are washed of sin. The water doesn't physically do that, of course. Only the blood and sacrifice of Jesus does that. But the water depicts this forgiveness symbolically. D. Baptism signifies the gift of the Holy Spirit. Building on what Peter taught at Pentecost, baptism is something which outwardly confirms the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we believe in Jesus as the risen Lord and become a disciple, the Holy Spirit begins to live within us and work through us. The waters of baptism symbolize this. Referring to the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself taught that the rivers of living water will flow from within those who believe in him. That's John 7, 38. The timing of the Holy Spirit indwelling a Christian, Christian does not necessarily correspond to the exact moment of baptism, but baptism symbolically captures this reality. E. Baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. That's the wording from the Westminster Confession. It is rooted in the idea of covenant. Now, in the Bible, God enters into a relationship with his people through covenants. A covenant is like a sacred contract or bond. For example, in Genesis 17, 7, we read, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, end quote. The visible sign of this covenant 
was the circumcision of male babies. This showed that they were a full part of the covenant people of God. At a marriage, a ring is a sign of the covenant between a husband and wife. In the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. In the New Testament, baptism replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. See Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. It now occurs, however, for both males and females. Therefore, baptism is a sign of the covenant between God and his people. In a passage about baptism in Galatians 3.29, Paul writes that we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. John Calvin taps uh, into this language of adoption when discussing baptism. Think of one family taking in another family, including their children. The family who is being taken in, along with their children, are now a part of the new household and receive all its benefits, including food in the fridge, security, and a warm hearth. The children receive these graces even though they don't yet fully know what is happening. Christian children, Calvin writes, quote, were received as children through a solemn symbol of adoption before they were old enough to recognize him, God, as father, end quote. I think that's a helpful perspective on the covenant and children. In addition, baptism marks a person's formal entry into the household of God, the church. When an infant or young child is baptized, they are called covenant members uh, because they are a part of God's covenant people and have therefore received the sign of this covenant, baptism. When the child grows up, it is important that they continue to learn about the faith and make a personal profession of that faith in Christ. To summarize these five points about the meaning of baptism, it symbolizes our union with God. It is a sharing in the death and resurrection of Christ. It symbolizes the forgiveness of sin. It signifies the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Four, who we baptize. Now, let's get more specific. Uh, At Westminster Church, we baptize two groups of people. The first group consists of men, women, and children who demonstrate both a genuine faith in Jesus Christ and a desire to join the church family. This is sometimes called believer's baptism. The person making the decision, the believer, has made the decision themselves. The second group consists of infants and children if at least one parent is a believer and a professing member of the congregation. This is sometimes called infant baptism, pedo-baptism, or covenant baptism. The rationale is closely linked to the idea of covenant explained above, but let's get into more detail. Five, rationale for baptizing infants and children. I'm convinced, as is much of the global historic church, that both the Bible and early church support the practice of household baptism, which includes infants and young children. This section is a bit longer. I wanted to include it because some people come from traditions which have not practiced covenant baptism. Therefore, I wanted to provide significant background and explanation. As discussed previously, believers are in a covenant relationship with God. God promises to be their God, and we promise to be His people. This covenant extends to the children of believers. Children of believers aren't excluded from the covenant because they are not yet old enough to make that decision. In the New Testament, As we've discussed, baptism replaces circumcision as the sign of that covenant. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 teaches that baptism is the full expression of circumcision. The covenant of circumcision required that the infant male be circumcised as a newborn infant, Genesis 17, 12. And this covenant was to be an everlasting covenant, Genesis 17, 13. Physical circumcision is clearly no longer in effect. Read Galatians 6, verses 11 to uh, 18. But the covenant it represents is still in effect. Romans 2.29. This new outward sign of this everlasting covenant with believers and their children is baptism. Right? Colossians 2.11 and 12. Therefore, we believe it follows then that baptism is to be administered to the children of a parent who believes if they wish to do so. 
Acts 2, verses 28 and, uh, sorry, 38 and 39, describe baptism with virtually the same language and, and terms with which Genesis 17 describes circumcision. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call, end quote. The promise connected in this passage explicitly includes the children of believers, as did the promise connected with circumcision in Genesis 17. No mention of a required age or profession of faith is made with respect to such children. Uh, as circumcision was a requirement for the Old Testament household, so we believe was baptism for the New Testament household. Lydia's entire household was baptized in Acts 16.15, as was the household of the converted jailer in Acts 16.33. Approximately one quarter of the baptisms mentioned in the New Testament are household baptisms. Never once are children said to be excluded from a household baptism. There is no biblical command given for believers to cease the application of the covenant sign with their children. Further, in the New Testament, believers' children were regarded as members of the covenant community. For example, in Luke 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus said that God's kingdom belongs to little children, from the Greek brephe, which literally means baby or infant. In Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4, in Colossians 3, 20 to 21, Paul addresses children, from the Greek tekna, meaning child, as believers in Christ. He speaks to them as he would any saint, regardless of age. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, Paul refers to the children, tekna, of believers as holy, meaning they are set apart for God. The word translated as holy, uh, hagia, is the exact same word used elsewhere by the apostles in reference to believers, translated saints, see Ephesians 1.1, for example. The New Testament assumption, then, is that children of believers should be regarded and treated as believers until or unless they prove themselves to be covenant breakers. Kevin DeYoung picks uh, up on this when he writes, Children in the church are not treated like as little pagans to be evangelized, but members of the covenant who owe their allegiance to Christ. End quote. The New Testament nowhere suggests that the sign of the covenant, previously circumcision, now baptism, is to be withheld from the children of believers until they make an informed profession of faith in Christ. It should be noted, however, that when a child is baptized, as an infant or a small child, they are in fact encouraged to make a personal profession of faith in Christ when they become old enough to do so. At Westminster, we call this confirmation. They are confirming their faith in Christ. When this happens, they become a professing member of the congregation. Six, the historic practice of the church. Uh, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John. He speaks of infant baptism as a universal practice in the early church. Tertullian lived at the uh, end of the second century. He acknowledged the universal practice of infant baptism. Origen lived in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. He also spoke of infant baptism as the common practice of the early church. If household and infant baptism were not the New Testament church practice, then the conclusion must be made that a full reversal of the early church's practice occurred immediately following the death of the last apostle. But since there is neither biblical nor extra-biblical evidence indicating so much as a debate about the issue in the 1st or 2nd centuries, such a reversal is extremely unlikely. What is more likely is that household baptism was taking place in the New Testament, that it, that it included infants, and that the practice continued in the early church as is documented and without so much as a mention of disagreement or controversy until the modern period. Now, there's a lot of documentation about virtually every theological debate and or alleged heresy in the early church. 
The issue of baptizing infants is not among them and is never mentioned, except to say that it is practiced. The practice continued through the centuries and was supported by Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin. In more recent times, some denominations have questioned the practice, uh, but this this does not negate the biblical arguments and historic practice of the early church and beyond. If a family wants to wait for a child to be baptized when older, that is perfectly acceptable. Some traditions don't perform uh, infant or child baptisms. Instead, they have dedications. I think that's a wonderful thing. Personally, I have friends who practice infant baptism, and some do not. We respect each other's positions and proceed according to our conscience. In the Reformed Protestant tradition, of which Westminster is a part, if a believing parent wants a child or infant to be baptized as a sign of belonging to the covenant people of God, that is acceptable. At that time, not only does the parent confess their faith anew and promise to raise their child in the home and fellowship of the church, but the congregation promises to pray for and support the child as well. My friend and colleague Matt Bruff wrote a book called Let God Be God. In it, he writes, When a child is presented to God for baptism or dedication, we can't point to the power of her action or her faith as a basis for her relationship with God. She is totally dependent on God for that. The baby is claimed as God's child. The church proclaims that she is a part of God's covenant of grace and that she is as much one of Abraham's descendants as anyone else, that she is a recipient of God's promises alongside all the saints that have gone before. None of this is the baby's own doing, nor is it the church's or even the parents, the child's inheritance in God's kingdom. Her justification through the death and resurrection of Christ, her righteousness is given completely through the grace of God which we pray she will one day receive and claim for herself in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, end quote. Well said. Seven, a sacrament. Having talked about the meaning of baptism, who we baptize, and also the rationale, let me say a short word about the meaning of the word sacrament. After all, we call both baptism and the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist, sacraments. Both of these actions are commanded by Jesus. As the word itself suggests, a sacrament is something sacred. It is holy meaning it is set apart from ordinary things for a special godly purpose. They are a sign and seal of God's grace and goodness in our lives through Christ. Tim Keller provides this explanation, quote, They're both signs and seals. We call them signs because they symbolize the blessings of salvation, forgiveness for sins, reception of the Holy Spirit, and the ability to commune with Jesus Christ in His presence. But they're not only signs, they're also seals. That means they actually bring these blessings to us. They assure us and stir up our faith, and it's our faith that receives those blessings, end quote. In the 17th century, Puritan Thomas Watson commented on the power of, of, of seeing and experiencing the act of baptism. It is something we do which communicates, indeed, the good news, indeed, the good news of Christ in our lives. Quote, in the word preached, believers hear Christ's voice, In the sacrament, they have his kiss. In the sacrament, they have his kiss. Yes, in the Lord's Supper and baptism, it is as if we see the love and goodness of God poured out into our lives, simply but dramatically acted out. They are visible expressions of the gospel given as a means of entering and sustaining the Christian life, as it says in the document Living Faith. Eight, summary. Let me offer a quick summary. Baptism is important but not necessary for salvation. It is not a reason to divide among Christians. Baptism is commanded by Jesus and symbolizes our union with God. It is a sharing in the death and resurrection of Christ. It symbolizes the forgiveness of sin. 
It signifies the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace administered to adults or to their children when at least one parent is a believer. This is always their own choice. I hope that this blog and podcast have been helpful. I've enjoyed putting it all together and am reminded again of the profound depths of God's love for his people in Christ. My wife was baptized as an adult. I myself was baptized when I was three months old. I still have the certificate commemorating the day. Maybe it's weird, but every time I'm in the shower, I splash myself in the face with water three times to remind myself that I've been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I belong to the Lord and will live for Him. I've baptized infants, and I've baptized youths and adults. I love when they confess their faith in Jesus. And I love when parents restate their faith and present a child as a part of the covenant of grace in God's family and household. Are there greater moments than these? Let me end with that same question from the Heidelberg Catechism with which we began. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ.